Second Corinthians chapter seven. Second Corinthians chapter seven. This will be week number fifteen, which means this is broadcast number fifteen. And therefore, let's start today, if we may, in verse one. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When it comes to one's practical standing, when it comes to one's daily, if not hourly, if not minute by minute relationship with the Lord, no two people are the same. And unfortunately, most preachers today are either in the holiness camp or the heretical camp. Most preachers today seem to either completely overlook or dismiss the two natures in the believer. And I've said this over the last several years, and I'll say it again very briefly, that unfortunately, most street preachers that you may see online or hear on the streets or know personally don't believe in the two natures of the believer. Most street preachers believe that if you don't live it, you lose it. And if you're not living it, perhaps you're not saved. They have no real notion when it comes to the old nature in the believer. And therefore, many times when they preach on the streets, number one, they will convict their hearers, which, of course, is the point of street preaching. But what isn't the point of street preaching is causing those that are saved to doubt their salvation. I remember listening to a preacher some years ago, and he took his kids to a local church to see a well-known evangelist. And he said for around 30 minutes, this well-known evangelist was trying to talk people out of their salvation. And this guy was shocked. He said uh, to his audience that he hadn't sent his children or he hadn't gone to this church with his children to allow this preacher to talk them out of their salvation. Something's very wrong if that's all you have to offer people or that's all you exist for to speak people or talk to people or try and convince people that perhaps they're not saved. But here, seven one, having therefore these promises dearly beloved, in reference to chapter 6, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, like separation, like segregation, like physical separation, like spiritual separation. And here, the Apostle Paul is addressing this again to save people. He calls them dearly beloved. Let us, and he includes himself, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it also says how the fear of man bringeth a snare. And yes, I think it is possible for a saved party to fear man and also God. That's not how it should be, of course. But I think that is something which is more than possible. But the key from 7-1 is number one, to cleanse ourselves. And number two, to produce or perfect holiness. In the fear of the Lord. Because number one that is what the Lord is. He is holy and therefore he wants us to be holy. He wants us to start here and now. Because one day we will all die. And we will go straight to the third heaven. If we are saved. And we will be in the presence of holiness. We will be in the presence of holy angels. We will be in a holy place. And therefore it is imperative to start. This walk of holiness here and now. But false teachings can also defile the saint. Not just physical sins. If you spend any amount of time with the wrong type of people, like, for example, the holiness camp or the heretical camp, they can defile you. And I've heard stories over the years of people going to, for example, holiness churches and just running out crying. I remember one lady some years ago telling us a story that she went to a church. It was run by family members. 
And they were very much into speaking in tongues. They were very much into prophecies. They were very much into visions. And she didn't speak in tongues. She had never seen a vision. She wasn't receiving prophecies. And this church, run by her family, like I say, put a lot of pressure on her. And she said she just snapped. She couldn't take it any longer. And she ran out of the church crying. I thought, what a what a statement. What a story to hear. I mean, this wasn't a church run, run by uh, people she didn't know. This church was run by her own family. A lot of pressure, you see. Do you speak in tongues? Have you been baptized by the Holy Ghost? Do you do this? Do you do that? In fact, we were in Bury this past week. And a guy came over to me. Very friendly chap. And we got talking for maybe five or ten minutes. And he was giving out a little booklet. Slightly charismatic, I would say. But uh, he wasn't any problem to us or for us. He was quite a pleasant sort of chap. And then five minutes later, or maybe more than five minutes later, maybe 25 minutes later, this guy came over to me, a Catholic. And he said to me, uh, have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? And I said to him, well, according to Ephesians 4.4, the moment you do believe, or the moment you have believed, on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are baptized into the body of Christ. He never heard that a day in his life. He was a Roman Catholic, and he was puffing on a cigarette, having a conversation with me. But, like I say, holiness, yes, that's the key. But, unfortunately, most people, most preachers, whether in church systems or on the street, will either be in the holiness camp or the heretical camp. So, yes, you can be defiled in a physical sense, of course, and also in a spiritual sense. Some of these street preachers are very brave. And I've watched these guys online for a long time. And they go to certain events, mainly in America. And they get physically assaulted. They get spat upon. They get cursed. One guy I saw online a few days ago got some mace thrown in his face. Uh, I've seen preachers beaten to the ground. I've seen uh, preachers treated like uh, animals. And we've also experienced some of that violence at our ministry. But 7-1, one, one more time, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, like separation, like come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Dearly beloved, again, addressed to saved people, not unsaved people, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Which means just that, that if you are saved, you need to cleanse yourself. You don't want to kid yourself and think that because you are now saved, you can't become defiled in a physical or a spiritual sense. 1 John chapter 1 says that if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. We have to confess our sins. And I personally confess my sins every day before I go to sleep, not to stay saved. I don't fear losing my salvation, but I confess my sins every night in order to stay in fellowship with the Lord. Why? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because he is holy, we must be holy as well. And also this is a commandment. There are many commandments in the Pauline epistles, and we refer to such as the law of Christ. 7-2. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. What a statement to make. Receive us. Why? We have wronged no man. That goes back to Paul preaching the full counsel of God. We have corrupted no man. That goes back to chapter 2, verse 17, concerning the word of God. The Apostle Paul, Peter, James and John, and all of the Apostles and their associates, number one, loved the Scripture, number two, believed the Scripture, and number three, preached the Scripture. We have defrauded no man. So there are two themes concerning 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And if you just joined us, 
we are in a in, we are into a three month study looking at Second Corinthians, and there are two themes. There are two situations going on in Corinth. Number one, you have the incest incident, which was dealt with back in chapter two. You had a man that was sleeping with his uh, father's wife. She could have been his biological mother. She could have been his stepmother. But either way, it was an abomination. That got dealt with. That guy repented and was restored back into the fold. And yet the holiness people say that if you sin willfully, after you have received the knowledge of the Lord, after you are born again, you lose your salvation and you can't get it back. They believe that. And yet this guy, Second Corinthians chapter 2, repented, was restored and never lost his salvation. It's a dangerous belief if you hold to such a theological uh, belief, such a position. The second incident that was affecting the Apostle Paul and his friends and associates were this group going around trying to undermine the Apostle Paul, offering themselves as apostles, quote-unquote, as disciples of the Lord, quote-unquote. They thought that they were the real deal and they thought that the Apostle Paul was not. And they were claiming credentials from the mother church in Jerusalem. And I have spoken over the years about James, the Lord's half-brother, who was very much a double-minded man. Very much a man with two natures. One moment he's preaching faith alone, Acts chapter 15. The next moment he is making it uh, mandatory for the Gentiles to watch what they eat, uh, watch how they operate. And he was also calling on the Apostle Paul to take a vow to go into the temple, to offer up a sacrifice or two, so that the Jewish brethren, those Jews that were saved, wouldn't stumble. He had no right to say that to Paul. He had no right to put that on Paul. And Paul, being Paul, would do whatever it took to win the Jews to the Lord. He told you over in First Corinthians that he was all things to all people, that he might win some to the Lord. So we can't and we mustn't criticize the Apostle Paul for going the extra mile to reach out to the Jews. But James was a double-minded man. James wasn't always consistent in his beliefs. Receive us, we have wronged no man. But in the context, Corinth in the context, those that he had preached to, those that had been born again, and those that were baptized. And incidentally, you're not saved by being baptized. This Catholic made the statement to me this past week that baptism is part of our salvation. I said, well, that's were the case, why would Paul tell you over in First Corinthians that he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel? And he said to me, do you mean John the Baptist? I said, no, I mean the Apostle Paul. First Corinthians, don't you know your Bible? And I wasn't trying to be smart. I wasn't trying to trip him up. But this guy spent nearly 15 minutes with me trying to perhaps challenge me, trying to correct me. And after our conversation, he walked off, sat down and continued to puff on his cigarette. I guess if that's his religion, he can keep it. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. So you've got this group going around saying that Paul is in it for the money, like Benny Hinn, like Joyce Mayer, like John Haggie, like all those TV evangelists. And you know who these people are. They, they are very wealthy. They are very well-to-do. They rub shoulders with the elite. In fact, there was a photograph I saw, maybe two three weeks ago, of a load of evangelicals in Washington, D.C., invited to the Oval Office, and all standing around Donald Trump. They're praying for him. Some have got their hands over him. It was a bizarre photograph, and I thought Trump looked somewhat uncomfortable. Trump isn't a saved man. Let's not kid ourselves. He's not a saved man. His wife is a Roman Catholic. 
his daughter has converted to Judaism. But he's not a foolish man. He knows that he needs the uh, religious rights, as they are as they are referred to in America. He needs to do religion, unlike Britain, where if a politician would do religion, they'd be laughed at, they'd be run out of town. But in America, you can't afford not to do religion. But the point is this: all all these uh, well-to-do people flew up to Washington, and also Pat Robertson, another reprobate. And I thought, what is going on here? Why are these people coming together, praying with an unsaved man? Many had flown up in their private jets. Many had gone to the White House in their limousine cars. Something's very wrong. The Apostle Paul would say, number one, to be separate. So I've given you the scriptures from chapter 6, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And also, the Apostle Paul would say, to let your moderation be known unto all men. If you read the book of Acts very carefully... You know within five minutes that when Peter and John, especially those two, came into the contact of the VIPs, they were interrogated, they were whipped, they were treated pretty badly. The Apostle Paul would come into contact with one king and several rulers, and one of those men said to Paul that, you're mad. Do you try to convince me to become a Christian? And Paul would say, yes, not only you, but all those that are present. And no, I'm not against, incidentally, preaching the gospel to Presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens, of course not. But not at the expense of the gospel. In other words, don't just rub shoulders with the VIPs, with the good and the great, and not preach the gospel. And this is the problem when you get into organized religion. But let's keep reading on. 7.3 I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. So it would be very difficult to profile Paul and suggest that, number one, he didn't love the church. Number two, that he wouldn't preach to the church. Number three, that he wouldn't go door to door preaching to the church. And number four, that he wouldn't go into the streets if necessary and raise up his voice. He would do all of those things. And like I said over the years, in many ways, Paul is a type of Christ. If you study Jesus Christ carefully, you know within, within five minutes that he was very much a man on a mission. He wouldn't always preach in the same place more than once. He would go out and about into the highways and the byways. He would preach in places that you wouldn't think of a rabbi of his stature preaching in such a place. He went to where the people are. And that's why we like to go to smaller towns in the northwest of England, not just Manchester all the time, where many, many people go. It's good to go to places which rarely, if ever, get visited I speak not this to condemn you. Now, he would condemn them. First Corinthians about their divisions. First Corinthians about suing one another. First Corinthians about speaking in tongues. First Corinthians about not having an interpreter. And I've made the case over the years, when I look at First Corinthians especially, that I think it's fair to say that you had in Corinth a group of carnal Christians that had come from pagan backgrounds, and parts of those pagan backgrounds would involve not only spiritual fornication, but on top of that, some of those spiritual backgrounds, some of those pagan backgrounds would involve speaking in tongues. You've got, on the one hand, from 7-1 especially, this concern in Paul's mind that perhaps there is some spiritual defilement. If you think of the Old Testament, if you think of uh, Eli's sons, for example, it speaks about his sons sleeping with the women outside 
of the temple, defiling these, the daughters of the land. And many pagan religions are very much into sex in their services, sex as a part of their union with the Lord or their Lord. And that too can obviously defile you. But he says here from 7.3 that he doesn't speak this to condemn them. For I have said before that ye are in a heart to die and live with you. Could the false Judaizers say that? Could this crowd that were going around trying to undermine him say that? I don't believe so. In fact, if you think of most false religions, they're not particularly interested in you. A lady came up to us yesterday on the street. She was slightly intoxicated and she told me she was homeless and she hadn't eaten. And I said to her, well, there's a church not far from here. They have a restaurant and they should be open today. And I thought this, that if the church didn't give any food, I would have bought her some food. But I wanted to give this church, quote unquote, the chance to provide for her. Because that's all these churches are good for. They won't preach the gospel. They won't share how to be saved with such people. But they will take care of their physical needs, but not their spiritual needs. And I watched this woman as she left where we were standing. And she approached some more people, panhandling, wanting money really. If the truth be known, she wanted money for alcohol and probably for drugs and who knows what else. But I was prepared to buy her some food if she wanted it, or buy her a coffee if she wanted it. But I know from experience, especially with the Jehovah's Witnesses, that had she gone over to them, and they were in town also yesterday, they wouldn't give her a penny. And I've watched this with my own eyes over the years. They're not interested when it comes to taking care of people's physical needs. They're very upright, and they too fall into the heretical camp, and they offer themselves as the real deal. They offer themselves as holier than thou, very self-righteous, and yet someone like her approaching them for some kind of physical help, food, drink, I mean coffee, not alcohol, but something to give her some energy or money towards the gas or the electricity or what have you. They're not interested. They are just not interested at all. They are simply on the streets to push their religion. They are simply on the streets to get you into their kingdom hall, like the Mormons, like most groups that you see on the streets. And I watch this I watch this lady leave us, walk off to this church, this apostate church, to get a meal. She never came back, so I assume that perhaps she got a meal. But here, Paul, 7, 1, 2, and 3, in some ways, is having to reiterate his credentials. He shouldn't have to do this, but he is. And sometimes, if you come across people online who are being attacked, they will spend a lot of time defending themselves. I'm not in favour of that. Personally, if you don't like me, I couldn't care less. But I know for some people, they get very upset if people attack them, if people make fun of them, if people try to snipe or undermine them. And they will put video after video after video after video online. And you think, why? Why are you bothering? But Paul had to do this because, number one, he was an apostle. Number two, Revelation was still being revealed to the apostles. The New Testament wasn't yet written. And number three, he knew that if he didn't stand up to such people and reaffirm his authenticity, there was a chance that this group would uh, devour the flock from within. Look at verse four, please. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. There's a man who is at peace with himself. If you are at peace with yourself, 
praise the Lord. There are many people around the world who are not at peace with themselves, who spend a lot of money consulting psychiatrists, psychotherapists, or visiting clairvoyants, or going to church after church, speaking with pastors and priests to get some inner peace. But here, that wasn't Paul's problem. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. Because he was their spiritual father, he got them saved. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Mark that man. Mark that man. If you have this kind of internal peace, you are very blessed. If you have this uh, kind of internal peace, share it with others. Take it to the streets if you can. Don't keep it to yourselves. Five. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled in every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So Paul was an evangelist, number one. And he would go all over the Roman Empire. And when he got into Macedonia, which today is the Balkans, it speaks, of, it speaks here about there was fear within, being inside the church, and fightings without, like outside. So picture this if you will. It's probably 55 AD. Paul He's around 45, 50, maybe 55. He's traveled to Macedonia via a boat. He's arrived in Macedonia, which from memory was a port town, is a port town. And he's got people fighting on every side, trying to kill him, trying to claw him, going back to brave street preachers, trying to just eliminate him. And that wasn't bad enough. There are fears within Fears inside of the church. And sometimes if you have a preacher or an evangelist or a ministry that is bold, wants to get the gospel out, it can cause local Christians to be fearful. I remember we got an email back in 2007. We were due to return to Germany. We'd gone in 2006 to Berlin. And that was a great uh, outreach. And in 2007, we returned and we worked in Munich and did some street preaching. But before we got to Germany, I guess we must have mentioned it online. We got an email from a guy in Austria and he said this. He said, uh, you guys are coming to Germany, I believe. And we said, yes, we are, uh, Lord willing. And he said, uh, we would love to meet you, referring to him and his wife. We live, in, we live in Austria. Do you have any plans to visit Austria? And we said, yes, we do. And... The arrangement had been that we would visit or we'd head off to his local city and we arrived in Germany, worked in Munich, uh, went to Austria, like I say, or was it Vienna? Salzburg. Salzburg, excuse me. And he didn't turn up. And we got an email shortly afterwards. And what, what had uh, happened was his wife got cold feet. His wife didn't, want the, didn't like the idea of a couple of brothers, street preachers, teaming up with her husband, this very well-to-do chap, I would imagine, and somehow being swept up by the police for street preaching or perhaps being condemned by friends and family. And therefore, this man, a pretty weak chap, listened to his, uh, listened to his wife and didn't turn up. And he was fearful, which could be what we're reading about here from 7-5, and he missed out on a blessing, I would suggest. But here, Paul is a man on the move and he's dealing with internal pressures, external pressures, but he's not phased. 
He couldn't care less. And that's why it's such a great blessing to profile Paul. Look at verse 6, please. Nevertheless, God, that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Paul mentions Titus many times in Second Corinthians, and I think of Proverbs chapter 18, when I think of uh, Titus, and in Proverbs chapter 18, I think of verse 24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Paul wasn't just some one-man band. He was very close to Dr. Luke, Titus, Timothy, and yet when he got to the end of his life, he was all alone. And he says, uh, it says over in 2 Timothy that he wants his cloak to be, uh, to be brought to him along with the parchments. He's about to be executed. And it says that he wants Timothy to, as I say, get his cloak, get his parchments, and arrive on time. And we don't know whether or not Timothy got there in time, but Paul started off despised and he would finish beloved. But here Titus 6 and 7 is commended because he has made it to Paul. And one more time from verse 6, nevertheless God that comforted those that are cast down. Going back to chapter 1, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Titus arrives and he says to Paul, I have good news for you. Number one, the incest incident has been dealt with. Number two, this internal war, this mutiny has been put down. The Corinthians are once again back on track. The Corinthians once again are doing what they should do. They are governing their fellowship from within, not without. And they have shut the mouths of these false teachers. But if you think of 7-2, corrupting one's mind, you can't help but think, for example, of the Catholic Church or the Tulip System. Both are just cancerous. And both are just corrupting so many people. And here you've got a group in Corinth that were also corrupting saved people. Going back to most street preachers. Going back to most church ministers today. Either preaching holiness. Like there's no old nature. Or preaching this heretical message. Could be the uh, the JWs. Could be the Mormons. Could be the SDA putting a lot of pressure on you to keep the Sabbath, putting a lot of pressure on you to work to get saved and work to stay saved. So much confusion out there. But Paul was relieved. And three words from verse 7, which come to my mind, earnest desire, mourning, and fervent mind, like a passionate mind, so that I rejoiced the more. This could have gone either way for the Apostle Paul. It could have gone either way for him. There could have been this major mutiny which could have corrupted and destroyed the church in Corinth, which perhaps could have knocked on to the other churches. And when that happens, you have a 
church collapsing from within, a fellowship collapsing from within. And it's very difficult to come back from that. I don't know how many saved people there are in the world today that have been hurt by churches, that have been hindered by churches, that have been destroyed by churches, by fellowships, by ministries. I have no idea, but I have a sneaking suspicion there are quite a few. And every so often we speak to people in the streets that have come out of organized religion, have come out of church systems, and nine times out of ten, they are almost agnostic. They're not giving out tracts. They're not trying to win souls to the Lord. They have turned their back on religion, which is fair enough, but they've also thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They've also turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is completely unacceptable. But what do you expect when you're dealing with false teachers, those that seek to attack the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and on top of that, those that are bickering, those that are arguing, those that are putting pressure on saved people to be even more saved, which of course is an oxymoron. You can't be any more saved than you already are. You're either saved or you're not saved. Yes, you can be holier. You can, be clo- you, know, you can have a closer walk with the Lord. You can be more sanctified, of course, but you can't be more saved. Going back to certain preachers trying to talk you out of your salvation and most of those people are in the lordship salvation camp and yet if you could spend just five minutes with those people in their homes behind closed doors you might be surprised to see how they live but this is a problem i think when you come across these people who are primarily preaching to the choir going from church to church in fact i watched a debate online a couple of nights ago concerning a creationist debate a well-known evolutionist and it ran to around three hours long, and I was struck at how wooden the creationist was. I was struck at how unable or unwilling the creationist was to answer direct questions. And I thought this, number one, he is uncomfortable. He is somewhat wooden. He looks uncomfortable, like I say, he's wooden. He doesn't look particularly at peace with himself. And it came to me later that what's probably going on here is that he's not in a natural environment. He's used to preaching to the choir. He's used to going to churches. He's used to getting a warm welcome, unlike Paul, 7-5. And therefore this well-known atheist, evolutionist, very natural on camera, looked very much at peace with himself, had good eye contact, unlike the creationist, didn't have any problem with the audience. And when the debate finished, the atheist left the platform, started to shake people's hands in the front row, whereas this creationist just left the stage. And I thought, what is going on here? When it came to presentation, the evolutionist, I believe, won. Not on points, not on actual facts per se. The creationist did a pretty good job, don't get me wrong. But when it came to presentation, the creationist looked more out of place. He wasn't among friends naturally or normally and this is a problem i think if you spend too much time speaking to saved people going from church to church you couldn't accuse paul of that you couldn't accuse people like william booth of that you couldn't accuse people like john wesley of that those men very much had their ear to the ground those men were very much real men preaching on the streets and yes of course preaching to save people let's not get the balance you know out of proportion if you 
are doing street work. You should also be doing teaching as well to teach the body of Christ. Don't get me wrong. But this well-known creationist, I thought, looked out of place, looked uneasy, not at peace with himself. No eye contact with his opponents. Little eye contact with the audience was reading from his laptop, not speaking from the heart. And I thought, what a shame. On presentation, he's lost. And this atheist, this very media savvy atheist, no doubt trained by the media, was able to stand very confidently, make good eye contact with his opponents and also with the audience. And like I say, when it ended at around three hours, or at the three hour mark, he was shaking people's hands in the front row. And I would imagine some of those people had traveled a long way to see this debate. And yet his opponent, this Christian celebrity, turned around and quietly left the stage. And I thought, what a great shame. And completely unacceptable as well. You want to be a real person. You want to relate to people. You want to be able to look people in the eye and say, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? You want to have some charisma, right? I don't mean in the sense of these apostates or these charismatics, but in the sense of putting people at peace with themselves, being able to relate to people, being able to connect with people. But this guy, this well-known creationist celebrity, I thought looked very uncomfortable. And I would hope that perhaps he will spend more time on the streets, more time speaking to unfriendly people or hostile people, not preaching to the choir. But anyway, I will close it there. And we looked at uh, seven verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And 2 Corinthians is a difficult book to teach, like I have been saying and will continue to say. And yet this is a book about a real ministry. A real ministry tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. A real ministry preaches negative uh, teachings and also preaches positive teachings. A real ministry will preach a negative message and a positive message. Much like the Lord Jesus Christ. One moment he would be commending the apostles. The next moment he would be condemning the apostles one moment he'd be commending those that he was preaching to and the next moment he'd be condemning those that he was preaching to and that is the key i think to a successful ministry a healthy balance of the negative and the positive and on top of that an absolute imperative need to separate to segregate physically and spiritually from sinners unsaved people of course and also from heretics, also from apostate churches and people, because they too can, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 2, defile you. They can cause you to stumble. And Paul spoke about such in the book of Romans, and Jesus Christ also spoke about such. And he said this, that if you cause one of those little ones that believe on me to stumble, it were better for you that you were cast into the depth of the sea. In fact, he would say to put a millstone around your neck in other words so you would sink faster what a statement to make but that kind of message doesn't get preached today you get jesus loves you come as you are it's all good contrast that to repent of all of your sins turn from all of your sins do this and do that and you might be saved you might get saved but if you don't live it you lose it you can't win either way can you which goes back to most of these groups preaching a message which you can't live up to and the truth be known, it borders on the Galatians curse. 
Because some of these people, some of these ministries, some of these churches are preaching another gospel. They are not preaching the grace of the gospel of God. They are not preaching that you are saved and kept saved by what Christ has done for you, not what you do for him. And when we speak about salvation, this ministry, we speak about all of your past, all of your present, and all of your future sins covered by the blood of Christ. And yet that also is being eroded. That wonderful message isn't preached like it used to be. And because it's not being preached like it used to be, I think a lot of people are struggling, stumbling, falling over themselves, struggling to get through each and every day, questioning their salvation. Am I really saved? I can't live it, so maybe I'll lose it. Or if you listen to that crowd of people, maybe you lost it all along. Or if you go down a Calvinist route, maybe Christ didn't die for you. Maybe not one of the elect. And that can cause a lot of distress to people. But anyway, let's not keep going over the same old ground and uh, conclude with what you've heard from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. And Lord willing, next week we'll pick it up from verse 8 from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 6 one more time please. Nevertheless God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. This term, cast down, is in reference to a person who, number one, is perhaps humiliated, number two, is perhaps frozen out, number three, is perhaps despised. And this past week, we did some street work in a town called Rochdale, in the northwest of England, and we got the banner up, and maybe after 10 minutes of arriving, this lady saw the banner, walked over to us. I would suggest she was around 30-ish, and she came over to us, a big smile on her face, and I could tell that she was somewhat disturbed, and yet not confrontational. And she said, uh, oh yes, amen, wonderful to see the banner, blah, blah, blah. And we had a scripture from John 3, 3 to verse 7 about being born again. And she said to me that she had died, a few days ago, she'd been dead six seconds. And uh, she told me that she had tried to kill herself. And uh, I could see the scar all across her throat, like 10 inches. And I thought to myself, what a terrible thing to do. No more than 35. And this poor woman, tormented, perhaps cast down from 7-6, offering herself as a saved woman, had decided to attempt to take her own life. And they obviously got to her in time, were able to rescue her. And uh, she spoke about seeing Jesus when she was dead for six seconds. And I thought to myself this, that I'm not going to get into a theological debate with her about what she saw or didn't see. I'm on the streets to get the gospel out. And like I say, I could tell within five seconds that she was disturbed, perhaps cast down. But when someone says to you that they are saved or that they know the Lord and they are commending you for taking a stand on the street with your banner, what else can you do? I'm not going to start to talk her out of her salvation. I've seen enough people online do that over the last decade or so watching videos. But I thought to myself this, what's going on here? Why is she so cast down? Why has she attempted to kill herself? And those scar marks all across her neck will be there for a long time. In fact, it may be that they will never go away. I don't know. But I said to her, do you have a Bible? And she said, yes. Then she said, actually, no, I don't have a Bible. Somebody took it from me. I think somebody had perhaps stolen it, or maybe she'd lost it, I don't know. So I said to her, would you like a Bible? And she said, yes, please. And she was very grateful to receive a King James Bible. And she turned around, walked up the hill, thanking me profusely. And I thought, there's every chance that I will never see her again. We haven't worked Rochdale for a long time. 
And she mentioned some groups that she was affiliated to or she knew of. And I thought, well, she's in safe hands. She's got at least some people looking out for her. But this term cast down also feeds back into the epistle of James. And James speaks about if you are uh, persecuted, if you are worn down, if you are sick, it says to send for the elders of the church. And of course, James was a Jew writing to Jewish believers. And that really feeds back into spiritual healing, not necessarily physical healing. Because the first church, the early church, the Jewish church especially, were very much persecuted. They were persecuted by their unbelieving Jewish brethren. So the need to send for saved Jewish elders in the first century and to come across somebody who was spiritually cast down, 7-6, makes sense. And those Jewish elders would pray over such a person. Also be mindful of this, that these signs and wonders were still prevalent in the first century. People were still being healed. But if you read Acts very carefully, the first 15, 16, 17, perhaps 18 chapters, if not the first 19 chapters, but no more than the first 20 chapters of Acts of the Apostles, people are being healed. Miracles are taking place. If you had a cold in Jerusalem, you were set free of that cold. You were healed, like straight away. But Acts 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, those sign gifts start to recede. And yet that seems to have been missed by many people. So if you are humiliated, if you are frozen out, if you are despised because you are a saved uh, brother or sister, take heed because you are greatly beloved. So last week we finished in uh, verse 7 from uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 7. So let's start today, if we may, in verse 8, please. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry that were but for a season concerning 1 Corinthians, concerning the incest incident, which got me thinking last night. I just wonder if this, in, if this uh, incest incident if that wasn't bad enough, I just wonder if it's possible that the man in question who was sleeping with either his biological mother or his stepmother, I just wonder if she was also a member of the church in Corinth, along with his father. And therefore you've got a party of three, a part of this early church, obviously known by those in Corinth, and this soon got out about this incident concerning incest. And I just thought last night, is it possible that that also would add to the stigma and the shame, not to mention the embarrassment. Because you've got a group of called out people, which is what the word church means, worshipping in a very awful part of the Roman Empire. And these people have come from very dubious and uh, sinful backgrounds, are saved and yet are falling back into their old way of life, which you can easily do if you're not careful. And that's why Paul says that such activity wasn't even spoken of amongst the gentiles well that may be the whole story i don't know i know that if you go back to the scriptures very carefully there's a lot of wickedness in the scripture but it could be that this uh incident like i say was bad enough but on top of that the church leadership weren't dealing with it they were too busy arguing they were too busy following one another like cephas like uh paul uh, and eventually like jesus there were groups within groups quarreling like denominational uh quarrelings like one's pride in their own system and on top of that you had people going to courts and suing one another and Paul would uh, rebuke such behaviour but at the same time verse 8 again for though I made you sorry with a letter I do not repent so he was sorry that it had caused pain and grief 
to these people in Corinth, but he wouldn't repent. He wasn't sorry for what he'd done. Why? Though I did repent. So initially he would repent. Initially he would repent because he was their spiritual father. And as their spiritual father, one of many, of course, it wasn't just Paul. He wasn't just a one-man band. But as their spiritual father, that got them saved, that uh, discipled them, that took them under his wing. He was grieved to see such pain as a result of his 16-chapter uh, epistle. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, which is the whole point of his epistle, that were but for a season. So he deals with the incident concerning this incest affair, like I say. But as soon as that was put to bed, you've got this group within a group, this mutiny building up. You've got this guy from chapter 12, verse 7, this false apostle, quite possibly demon-possessed, that was going around Corinth, just slandering Paul, attacking Paul, trying to undermine Paul and his ministry. And that wasn't bad enough. Paul is almost blind as well. So he's being hit by more than one uh, attack. And that, of course, comes from the Lord directly and indirectly from the devil. Nothing can touch a child of God without the Lord agreeing to it. For though I made you sorry with a letter, First Corinthians, I do not repent. I won't uh, recant. I won't go back on what I did. Though I did repent temporarily for a period of time, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, absolutely, that were but for a season. So he deals with the tongue incidents as well, people speaking in tongues. And he's very clear that if you speak in tongues, it would involve two or three men, never women, and never when unsaved people are present. And when two or three men would speak in tongues, like known languages, you would need an interpreter present. And yet when is that observed today? I was sent a clip a few days ago of a documentary filmed maybe 10 years ago somewhere in America and they were analysing people that speak in tongues and they were putting these people in hospitals and wiring them all up to monitor their brain waves and it was very interesting to watch and I thought number one you've got people speaking in tongues outside of a church environment number two they're not known languages number three they are being carried out in the presence or these tongues are being spoken in the presence of unsaved people and number four there's no interpreter present and Paul was very critical of that. And if you want to find out more about that, look at 1 Corinthians 12 to chapter 14. But like I say, that was dealt with. But he's now got to deal with this infighting, like we follow St. Paul, or we follow St. Peter, or we follow St. Jude, or we follow St. Michael, which goes back again to denominational uh, systems, people being very proud of their churches, and yet rarely ever preaching about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9, please, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. That word damage, like collateral damage, a very modern term. And you look at these war zones around the world, and people are being killed. And the term is, well, we are trying to limit collateral damage. Well, it's the same kind of thing here, but this is... In reference to spiritual damage. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry. Well of course not. He wouldn't take delight seeing his beloved church. Being uh, chastised by him via his epistles. But that he sorrowed to repentance. So the word repents. Repentance. Repenteth. Repenting. Is found many times in scripture. And as I stand here this morning. I think the first time it appears in the Bible. 
is first, excuse me, it will be uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, it concerns Almighty God repenting himself that he had made man, that there was so much wickedness on the face of the earth, that man's uh, thoughts were only evil continually. And from Genesis chapter 6, it is in reference to remorse, regret. Elsewhere, you know, it can also be in reference to turning. It can be in reference to turning from unbelief to belief. It can also be in reference from turning from a sin or sins. Like once you are saved, you then turn from sins. You turn from bad, uh, bad habits. You uh, forsake bad company, like chapter 6, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, verse 18. It can also be in reference to being sorry for who you are and what you are. You sorrowed to repentance, verse 9, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. So, in essence, you've got two types of repentance in Scripture. Number one, you've got the type of repentance which means that you are sorry for being caught, like perhaps Pharaoh, like perhaps Judas, like perhaps Balaam. They were sorry for being caught. They were sorry for not getting away with it. Contrast that to repentance like what Peter would experience or like what David would experience or like what Job would experience. Six people there. The first group are unsaved from start to end and their repentance meant nothing to the Lord. But the second group of three were saved Jews. And they were sorry for what they did and also for who they were. And that uh, psalm from King David concerning the uh, Bathsheba incident. And he's on his knees, he's on his face. And he's probably crying as he deals with that uh, particular incident. And yet we know the background to it. The Lord killed the child. And yet what interests me is that David remained with Bathsheba. Had children with her like Solomon. And it says how the Lord loved Solomon. So sometimes the Lord will take a bad situation and turn it into something good in a way that we don't quite understand. Verse 10, please. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So verse 10 is quite simply in reference to saved people doing an about turn, repenting. And here the context will be in reference to this mutiny which has been building and also a throwback to the uh, incest incident. But also you've got this repentance concerning the sorrow of the world unto death. You can die a broken heart. I remember some years ago hearing a story about a couple who had two boys. And this couple were pretty well-to-do, middle-class couple. And the eldest of the sons was a doctor from memory. And the younger of the sons was... Not so successful, shall we say. Had slight learning difficulties. And the two boys grew up. The parents were a well-to-do sort of couple, like I say. But the younger of the two sons had many emotional problems. And his greatest fear was that one day he would become homeless. No explanation as to why he had such a dread, such a fear. His parents loved him. His parents uh, would have taken care of him, of course. And one day, apparently this uh, young man went missing and the police were called and a helicopter was scrambled and apparently he was found dead on a railway track not far from his home and the friend that I knew at the time told me that he thought it was suicide and the coroner obviously opened up 
an investigation, as they do, and he couldn't be sure whether or not it was suicide or accidental death. But my old friend at the time was pretty clear in his mind that this was suicide. And this poor man, unsaved, both of his parents were unsaved, and they're probably dead now, and his older brother was a doctor. On the outside, very well-to-do family, and yet internally, this family were breaking. This son couldn't fit in, felt like a failure, was very insecure, would have awful depressions, anxieties, and probably one night he just snapped, left the house, went for a long walk, and never came home. And he was found head down, or face down, I should say, on a railway track. Suicide, no doubt. For godly sorrow, verse 10, one more time, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. This is still aimed at saved people. A lot of people like to quote this and aim it at unsaved people, but in the context, Paul is speaking to saved people in Corinth. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. If you think of people in society, well-to-do people that have gained the whole world and lost their own souls, and yet for some of those people, it's not enough. You think of someone like John Denver. You think of someone like Kurt Cobain. You think of someone like George Sanders. I mean, these are these guys are big names in their day. I know that for some of those people, they are long forgotten. But Kurt Cobain still has a cult following today. If you liked uh, rock music or acid music, or if you grew up listening to heavy metal music in the 1990s, I would suggest that you know who Kurt Cobain was. A very popular name. And yet for him... This millionaire American decided to just finish it all. And I think verse 10 is probably speaking about someone like him. Contrast that to someone like David who wanted to return into fellowship with the Lord. Or someone like Job or Peter or even Abraham. Or the chap from Second Corinthians who again would repent concerning the uh, incest incident. Or this crowd, the eldership no doubt, repenting concerning this Mutiny. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Yes, of course, you can apply that to an unsaved person in a spiritual sense. And you can say that you should be sorry for who you are and what you are. You should be sorry that you've sinned against Almighty God and therefore you need to be saved. But in the context, one more time, it is in reference to fellowship. It is in reference to coming back into the fold. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And yet many people... Many young people are desperate to break into the entertainment world. And if you've watched programs like uh, The X Factor or American Idol or The Voice, those programs are watched all over the world by tens of millions of people. In fact, I caught a glimpse maybe a year ago or so of of all people, a nun in Rome joining this uh, TV show called The Voice in Italy. And it starts off just very quickly, just to give you some background to this. You have a panel of three, all experts in the music world, and they sit with their backs to the contestants, so they can't see you, but they can hear you. And this nun came on, wearing all of her clerical gear, and she was singing a song. I forget uh, the name of the song. It's not relevant. And I thought, number one, what's she doing there? Number two, why is she singing secular songs like from the 1980s? I think it may have been a Madonna song, actually. And number three, she was commended. And I think she went on to win that particular show. I don't know. But my point is this. You've got many people that are desperate to break into the entertainment world. And again, Christ would say, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? And yet once they break in, 
if they do, most won't of course, but if they do break in and if they remain at the top, they pay a huge price for it. I mean suicides, I mean drinking problems, drug problems, marital breakups. I mean look at Tiger Woods. If you are a golf fan, he's quite possibly the number one golfer in the world. I don't follow sport myself, but I know enough from what I see online that he is still thought of as the greatest golfer in the world. He's made millions, but look at his lifestyle. Look at the price that he's paid. If you think of someone like Judy Garland, I mean, she died not even 50 years old. She was pushed, pushed, pushed by her mother. She made it to the, uh, to the top, but what a price to pay. Or if you think of someone like Sammy Davis Jr. In 1987, he goes to visit his doctors in Los Angeles, the best doctors in America, and they say to Sammy Davis Jr., we have good news for you and we have bad news for you. And he says, what's the good news? And they say, well, the good news is that we can save your life because you've got throat cancer. And he says, well, what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is we have to take your voice box out to save your life. And uh, Sammy Davis says, well, you know what? If I can't sing, let me die. And the doctors start to look at each other, think to themselves, this man is not even 62 years of age. He's hardly an old man. And if he lets us operate on him, we can save his life. But he said, no, if I can't sing, I want to die. And over the next two years, I would suggest, verse 10, but the sorrow of the world worketh death is very much relevant to him. And over the next two years, he would become more sick. The cancer was spreading and he was almost housebound. And that wasn't bad enough. People were visiting his home, so-called friends. But really, if the truth be known, hangers on. And they were stealing from him. They were taking pianos. They were taking guitars. They were taking drums. They were clearing his house right under his nose. He wasn't even aware of it. He was sick in bed upstairs, dying. And his so-called friends were stealing from him. What a terrible way to die. But this is what the world will give you. And that's what the scripture says, that the love of the world is an enmity with the Lord. If you love the world, you are an enemy of God. Powerful stuff. Verse 11, please. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. You've got seven attributes here concerning real repentance, concerning a person or people, and here in the context, a church that are doing a complete 180 degree turn. It's one thing to know that something is wrong and to give it mental consent, but it's something altogether, uh, something altogether different when you turn from it, when you do something with it. I think it was C.T. Studd who said that faith and works go hand in hand. And he was absolutely right. You don't just look at the cross or look at Jesus Christ or look at the scripture and say, beautiful, or that's all very dandy and rosy. You have to apply it. You have to do something with it. You have to be a doer of the word. He sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. You're now exonerated from your behavior. Yea, what indignation? Yea, what fear? Yea, what vehement desire? Yea, what zeal? Yea, what revenge? Interesting word, revenge. They have become rebels against sin. How about that? And slaves to the Savior. Slaves to righteousness. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So it wasn't too late for the Corinthians for a period of time, it all seemed very depressing, very worrying. 
to the Apostle Paul, as he would observe this church of his, almost breaking up, falling into cliques and cliques and groups within groups. But they were saved. And when Paul put the scripture to them, eventually they dealt with the issues at hand. Look at verse 12, please. Wherefore I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. He won't even name the man in question. Now it could be the guy con, uh, concerning the uh, incest incident. It could be the man in question from chapter 12, verse 7, who was going around slandering Paul, like I say, trying to destroy Paul. You've got one or two options there. Wherefore, though, I wrote unto you, 1 Corinthians and also 2 Corinthians. There's also a 3 Corinthians, incidentally, which has been lost. I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. So he wasn't just going to spend 16 chapters dealing with the one guy in question. He was also going to deal with uh, the other issues at hand. Going back to speaking in tongues, like I say. Going back to women speaking in the church. Going back to Christians suing one another. Going back to the fruits and gifts of the Spirit. Nor for his cause that suffered wrong. So there's two groups of people here. But here you've got uh, personal pronouns. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. So like I say, yes, on the one hand you've got the incident concerning incest, like I say, and also concerning the man in question, the ringleader. Somebody was going around trying to destroy Paul's ministry. If you think about Solomon... Towards the end of Solomon's life, there was a guy raised up who, whose name escapes me. And his uh, purpose was to humble Solomon, shall we say. And again, that goes back to the Lord using an unsaved character and allowing a devil or two to indwell such an unsaved character to deal with somebody who was greatly beloved by the Lord. I believe Solomon was saved. And yet, if you profile him carefully... It's very uh, distressing at times to read about his actions, his choices, and yet I believe he was saved. I believe David was saved. I believe uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, was saved. I know most people don't like to think that such people could be saved. Most church people, of course, I'm referring to, a lot of church people are very self-righteous. But if you read the scriptures carefully, you will see that the best of the best were just as wicked as you and I. In fact, if you... And I had the sort of power that they had. You too would fall into all sorts of problems, I suggest to you. 13, please. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly, the more joyed we for the joy of Titus. Because the spirit was refreshed by you all. So Titus is going to be mentioned many times throughout Second Corinthians. And Titus was a great blessing to the Apostle Paul. Titus was a brick. Like we say, and I gave you the scripture from uh, Proverbs 18.24 last week. He was closer than a brother. In fact, David and Jonathan were very close. And uh, Saul, King Saul, insinuated that they were so close that perhaps they were homosexuals. Perhaps they were sodomites. He even says such a thing. And uh, I know that the uh, LGBT community like to jump on that particular passage. And so there you are, you see. David and Jonathan were homosexual sodomites. Well, hold on a second. Did it ever cross your mind that perhaps the man who made that wicked slur was demon-possessed? Many times it says that the spirit of the Lord left him and an unclean spirit came upon him. 
So just because he would say such a thing doesn't mean it was so. And I'll tell you something, just for the record. Had David and Jonathan been homosexuals, lovers, a term I don't particularly care to use, you would have been told that in the scripture. You've got every other sin written down and recorded in scripture. But that particular sin, had it been relevant, would have been written down, I suggest to you. But my point is this. David and Jonathan were close. Closer than brothers. Closer than lovers. It says that uh, the love that Jonathan had for David was greater than those from women that he had known. Which would be a picture of Christ loving the church. And dying for the church. But Titus, verse 13, is greatly beloved. Titus has given uh, Paul great news. And Titus is one of the greats found in the New Testament. Look at verse 14, please. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. But as he spake all things to you in truth, even so I boast in which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. If you think of fear, you either think of one or two things. Number one, you think of the fear of man, bring it to snare, or you think of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there's also a third fear. Go to Isaiah 65. Keep your hand in Second Corinthians. In fact, it's Isaiah 66, excuse me. Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Those that fear his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 7. So there's a third fear. There's a fear of the word of God, a trembling when it comes to reading the word of God. And like I've said before, and I'll say it very quickly again, for me anyway, when it comes to reading the scripture, it's always a blessing, of course, but when it comes to preaching or teaching or explaining the scripture i have to tread very carefully i take the word of god very seriously and when i read verses in the scripture old or new testament i know that i have to be very careful how i read such passages and explain such passages i could so easily give people a license to sin but that's not my purpose i could so easily raise the bar like the calvinists do and say that if you do sin you're not saved, or you're not one of the elect. Or I could do what the, the, uh, I could do what the, uh, the charismatics do. I could say that, well, if you do sin, you will lose your salvation. That's not my purpose. My purpose isn't to put stumbling blocks in the way of people. My purpose isn't to give people a license to sin, because we are saved. My purpose is to take the word of God very seriously, and also be sensible when it comes to preaching and rightly dividing the word of truth. 16, and I will close from Second Corinthians chapter 7. I rejoice therefore that I have confidence in you in all things. So it could have gone one of two ways. This church could have just split. And churches have split over the years. Ministries have split over the years. And if the truth be known, where people are meeting, like say people, there's contamination never far away. And that's why you don't want to have too high a view of yourself or others in fact just yesterday we were doing some street work and a guy came over to us and he said uh ex-catholics and we said yes and he said uh, i've seen you guys on youtube 
And I left this chap speaking to Patrick for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And number one, this guy is saved. Number two, this guy is a musician. Number three, this guy was giving out tracks in town. Somewhat wordy, we uh, observed. And unfortunately, they were New King James tracks. But nevertheless, his heart was in the right place. He was trying to make a difference. And as we arrived in town, there were some Muslims setting up their trestle table. This uh, marquee, very well to do, quite professional looking. Maybe seven Muslims. And apparently the BBC were due to arrive in town to film uh, these Muslims. And they were wearing their uh, nicely coloured coding uh, garments. And it said, uh, Islam against extremism. Very interesting. But this guy that was speaking to Patrick for maybe 10 minutes was a musician, like I say, and he was semi-professional. And he told Patrick that he had been playing in many of the churches in and around the London area, like the big churches, like the Pentecostal churches, like the holiness churches. And he said, uh, you wouldn't believe what goes on in such churches. I mean, the amount of money that they receive, that they just squander, the immorality is all over the place. And he said, uh, I've had to come away from such places because of the way they are behaving. And yet, unfortunately, he had to confess, I may have to go back and play in their churches because the money's so good. Now, that's an honest account. There's a man who's saved, lives locally, trying to make a difference, is a musician by trade, is playing in, in these churches because their own worship bands aren't particularly good. And this is very typical of most of these churches. They will bring in professional musicians to beef up their orchestras. But this guy is somewhat unusual. This guy was saved. He is saved. And yet he's making a living as a musician, performing in churches, like I have said. But from the outside, they would appear to be all very wonderful, all very well to do. And yet if you look uh, through the keyhole, as it were, like Ezekiel chapter 8, you'd be pretty surprised as to what you would see. I remember over 10 years ago, we went down to London to give out some DVDs outside a Morris Corello event. And we'd arrived just five minutes giving out DVDs. We'd also given out DVDs outside this Benny Hinn event where we were detained by security guards and held against our will for 15, 20 minutes. Patrick phoned the police. They never arrived. And eventually we were able to uh, leave uh, this detention once the supervisor arrived and told his uh, goons to release us. But we went down to another event that day concerning Morris Corello, and we were giving out DVDs. And one of his uh, minions came out, saw us, started to take photographs of us, and phoned the police. And I thought, where's the love there? You are supposed to be so tolerant, and yet there's no tolerance there. Which goes back to other groups that if you correct them, if you challenge them, they won't repent. Like if you challenge a Calvinist over limited atonement, they won't repent. Or if you challenge a Christian over these new Bibles, they won't repent. They won't listen to you. And that's why the judgment seat of Christ is relevant. Because all of us will appear one day at such a place and have to give an account of ourselves to the Lord. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 16 verses, as always, covering a lot of material. And I think Paul was relieved, shall we say, that it had all come good. It could have gone one of two ways, like I say, but they eventually, at the 11th hour, repented, did a complete about turn, dealt with this infighting, 
and the majority of those in Corinth got behind Paul. They realized that this demon-possessed leader, this demon-possessed apostle, this demon-possessed disciple, this demon-possessed Judaizer, no doubt uh, somehow of the belief that he had James's authority from Acts chapter 15, uh, wasn't any good, and that Paul was a real deal. And like I say from verse 11, you've got seven characteristics of true, genuine, heartfelt repentance concerning saved people dealing uh, with restoration, dealing with repentance, coming back into fellowship with the Lord. Contrast that again to Pharaoh, Judas Iscariot, and Balaam, and no doubt other wicked people from the Old Testament. And we think of people like Peter, who came back to fellowship with the Lord, Job, and also King David, probably the greatest account that I can think of, of somebody coming back to fellowship with the Lord. Temporarily, Paul would be uh, remorseful for his letter, for his need to get the big stick out, as it were, but a little pain in the short term was necessary. And like they say, sometimes you have to be kind, excuse me, sometimes you have to be cruel, Sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. And here Paul achieved his purpose. And I'll close it there. And next week we'll pick it up, Lord willing, from 2 Corinthians chapter 8.